Hello Cooter fans, as most of you know, our podcast is currently on hiatus, but that shouldn't stop us from wishing one of the greatest singer-songwriters of all time a happy 80th birthday, Randy Newman. So we're pulling one of our early bonus episodes out of the archives. It covers about 30 years of successful collaboration between Cooter and Newman. Have fun with it. Hello. And welcome to another bonus episode of The Rye Cooter Story, a podcast dedicated to the music, the movies, and the career of slide guitar master Rye Cooter. My name is Frank. I'm a video producer, podcaster, and lifelong Rye Cooter fan from Berlin, Germany, bringing you this podcast with a little help from text-to-speech AI. Today we're talking about another long Cooter collaboration. It started in the late 60s and lasted almost 30 years. It's another Warner Brothers connection that has spawned numerous albums and concerts, but surprisingly, only one movie. You guessed it, we're talking about Cooter and Randy Newman, one of the greatest singer-songwriters of all time. So here we go. It was October 16, 1969, in the northern California town of San Anselmo, a 26-year-old singer-songwriter gave his first ever concert. This despite the fact that he had been in the business for almost 10 years, had written several hits for others, and had released a solo album the year before. The venue was called The Lion's Share, then considered the hottest club in all of Marin County. It held about 150 people, it took some effort for Randy Newman to overcome his shyness and get up on stage. For safety's sake, he turned his back to the audience for the entire concert. He was accompanied by 22-year-old Rye Cooter, like Newman, a member of Lenny Waronker's Warner Brothers gang. They played Underneath the Harlem Moon, an ambiguous song about racism. And Yellow Man, another ambiguous song about racism. Of the experience of his first live performance, Newman later said, I was afraid I might be misunderstood, and someone would jump on stage and beat the hell out of me. But no one jumped on stage. No one got particularly excited. The evening, like the next two, caused little sensation. It was as it often was in those days. Whatever the young Waronker troupe around Van Dyke Parks, Russ Teitelman, Randy Newman, and Rye Cooter touched. Critics loved it, but audiences barely noticed. Posterity would see it differently. As we heard in episode 3 of the Rye Cooter story, Randy Newman came from a dynasty of movie composers. His uncles Alfred Lionel and Emil Newman were top Hollywood players for decades. So it's no wonder that composing and making music came naturally to young Randy. He was born in Los Angeles in 1943, but spent much of his childhood in New Orleans. This made him a crossover artist between Californian ease and defiant Southern provincialism a contradiction that would be felt in many of his musical creations. He wrote and sold his first songs at the age of 17. Hits for Gene Pitney, Dusty Springfield, and Scylla Black soon followed. But their interpretations of his compositions didn't make him happy. He told Melody Maker in 1974, I was complaining all the time about how bad many of the versions of my songs were, and Jesus, why didn't they do them the right way? I just got tired of hearing myself all the time so I figured I'd mess the songs up myself. 
It was a good thing that Newman's old childhood friend Lenny Waronker had signed with Warner Brothers. It was Waronker who had inspired Newman to take up composing in the first place when he was a young man. Newman signed with Warner's, took the $10,000 check he desperately needed at the time, and began working on his debut album with Van Dyke Parks. Parks, like Newman, was an intellectual foreign body in the years of rock and pop. The two overachievers had put their heads together in 1967 on the latter's unwieldy song cycle album. In their youthful recklessness, the two attempted nothing less than to create something new under the sun, as the subtitle of Newman's eponymous debut put it. Parks and Newman were, as Randy would later say, a distinct species of man who had lost his way in becoming homo sapiens. For them, music was allowed to be complex, maybe even a little exhausting. And there were no clear dividing lines between rock, pop, and classical. Together with Lenny Waronker, they produced an album full of great songs accompanied by orchestral music and ravishing violin arrangements. The lyrics are multi-layered, evil, ambiguous, political, and socially critical in a very unique way. And of course, hilarious if you share Newman's dry sense of humor. But of course, all that was completely out of date. The odd voice, the disturbing lyrics, the classic sound. All this was miles away from the mainstream. The album was a huge flop. Even when given away for free in a questionable marketing campaign, it found no takers. Newman. It's very hard to get rich and famous at a young age and handle it well. I can't think of anyone who did. Some of them got through it and now they're fine. And some of them died. And some of them are assholes. And some of them don't have money anymore. But no one was the same person. Fortunately, I wrote stuff that people didn't like. I dodged a bullet there. Nevertheless, the studio stuck with Newman. You can't give Lenny Waronker and the others enough credit for their foresight. Today, Randy Newman can look back on 13 solo albums and 22 Academy Award nominations. He has won two Oscars, three Emmys, and seven Grammy Awards. He is a member of both the Songwriters and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. For The Atlantic Magazine, he is the foremost musical satirist of his generation. The characters he has created and themes he has explored over his career show as nuanced a grasp of America's dark currents and humanity's crooked timber as any songwriter has managed. In fact, there may be no one in the American songbook whose work did more to anticipate the tragicomic place the United States finds itself in today. But all that was music for the future, when Randy Newman and Ry Cooter stood together on that small stage in San Salmo in the fall of 1969. At the very least, both had long since begun to make a name for themselves as studio musicians. Cooter had played on albums by Captain Beefheart, Paul Revere, and many others. He had jammed with the Rolling Stones only months ago. Newman had landed an arranging gig on an album by rock and roll legend Fats Domino. Only a few days after the Lion's Share concerts, Domino even recorded one of Newman's own songs, a freewheeling version of Have You Seen My Baby? It was released as a B-side in 1970 and features two pianos, one acoustic and one electric, having a wonderful time. And although it's not credited anywhere, there's a slide guitar that sounds very much like Ry Cooter's.
In episode three of the podcast, we reported in detail on the production of the score for the British gangster movie performance. Jack Nitsche had been supervised by Warner Brothers and had assembled a group of Warner artists to record the soundtrack. Among them were Ry Cooter, Russ Teitelman, Lowell George, and several others. And of course, Randy Newman, who conducted the orchestral arrangements. In his book on the production of performance, Paul Buck wrote, Randy Newman, who would later make his own contribution to film music, opens the soundtrack with Gone Dead Train written by Nietzsche with Russ Teitelman. Newman is not known for his blues singing, but this up-tempo rock song benefits from his gravel-tired voice. Randy was the core of the band, along with Cooter and Teitelman. Though the song was based on King Solomon Hill's Gone Dead Train, it was so loose that it bears little resemblance. The original lyrics were to do with an actual train, a death train, which was probably part of the reason for its inclusion at the head and its reprise at the end of the film. When the fly in the They also recorded what would become Mick Jagger's first solo single. The vocals for Memo from Turner were sung by Jagger and sent as a single track from England. All the other elements were recorded in the L.A. studio, immediately followed by a song for Newman's second album. As Cooter confirmed to the Syracuse Times in 1973, yeah, we did the memo from Turner thing and the Newman thing the same day. That was the same band. Jagger mailed in the tape of his vocal, and we just laid the music under it, and then we did the Newman session. Twelve Songs, released in 1970, was a change of direction for Newman. A horn section, yes, but no more orchestra, no more strings. Instead, he hired a bunch of great session players, including Ry Cooter, Clarence White, Jim Gordon, and Gene Parsons, and went for a guitar-heavy style. As he told Uncut Magazine in 2008, I was trying to think commercially. I thought, well, the orchestra didn't work, so there's no orchestra on 12 songs. It's funny, I don't play much from that LP. It's highly thought of, but there just aren't many songs on there I can perform. Though Mama Told Me Not To Come has been done by lots of other people, 12 Songs is Newman at his most vicious. The whole album is about dropouts and misfits, peeping toms and alcoholics. Toxic sex and racism are the dominant themes. There's a sense of danger and menace in the air created by Newman's intimidating vocals, but also by Ry Cooter's mighty bottleneck guitar. If Newman was trying to think commercially, he was still a long way from selling out. Track number two is the nihilistic Let's Burn Down the Cornfield. In it, a pyromaniac literally has a field day. It's built around one of Cooter's finest riffs. Boy, it's so good on a cold night to hell fire burning warm. No Magazine's Tom Grierson called the song 
a vague snapshot of a demented couple causing random destruction for inexplicable reasons. At the end, Newman sings menacingly, let's burn down the cornfield, and I'll make love to you while it's burning. Then, of course, there is Mama Told Me Not to Come. Newman, like Rye Cooter, an avowed anti-hippie, originally wrote it for Eric Burden in 1966, reflecting on his own experiences with the Los Angeles music scene of the 60s. The narrator is a well-behaved young man who is deeply shocked by the excesses of his first wild big city party. Here's what Newman biographers David and Caroline Stafford wrote about the song. Mama told me not to come, in which a young innocent finds himself astonished by the sights, sounds, and smells of a grown-up party, is a song that had appeared three years earlier on Eric Burden's album. Randy's version is easier to believe. Eric Burden had looked dissipated since he was about 12. The idea of his being shocked by the appearance of a jazz cigarette or alarmed by the smell of stale perfume was never entirely plausible. The scant handful of people who'd seen the pictured Randy on the sleeve of his first album, the first picture with the yellow jumper, could well believe that this man had not done a lot of parties. He sounds terrified even of Rye Cooter's guitar, which is admitted very dirty indeed. Mama told me not to come. Mama told me not to come. Mama said it ain't a way to have fun. Open up the window, let some air into this room. I think I'm almost choking on the smell of stale perfume. And that cigarette you're smoking about to scare me half to death. Open up the window, let me catch my breath. It wouldn't be giving too much away to say that Newman's second album was also a commercial failure. Mama Told Me Not To Come, on the other hand, was a huge hit. Not for Newman, but for the band Three Dog Night. Their version, released only one month after 12 songs, portrayed the party trip not as a nightmare, but as an orgiastic pleasure in which the narrator fully participates. For Newman, it was a real consolation, similar to what J.J. Cale might have experienced when Eric Clapton covered his songs. At first I didn't like the way that they did this song, but when the royalty checks started drifting in, I figured they might be able to send my son to Harvard. Cooter's third and final contribution to 12 songs is Lucinda, a song with a similarly ominous atmosphere to Let's Burn Down the Cornfield. The title character may have celebrated her graduation a little too hard. She is now lying on the beach, comatose or possibly even dead. Then she gets run over by a cleanup truck. It's another surreal yet macabre scene, but Newman explained that it all actually happened on a beach he went to himself. Oh, and by the way, Bob Dylan really liked the song. It was summer evening. Sun was going down. She was lying on the beach. In her graduation gown. She was wrapped up in a blanket. I could tell she knew her way around. Newman's next album is considered by many to be his best. Produced by Russ Teitelman and Lenny Waronker and released in 1972, Sail Away manages the feat of combining the orchestral pop of the debut with the southern-inflected rock of the follow-up. The New Musical Express would say, The album is one of the most interesting released for some time. The backings varied from rock to a touch of country. Then on to ballads with some beautiful string arrangements. There's also Simon Smith, 
and his amazing dancing bear to enjoy and a send-up of a rock number. You can leave your hat on. You can leave your hat on. A song is a detailed strip instruction. It is one of two numbers on the album that feature Cooter. It's another song that Newman interprets in a decidedly nastier and more ambiguous way than his beneficiaries like Joe Cocker and Tom Jones. While in Newman's case the protagonist sounds somehow sinister and threatening, creating a peculiarly dirty atmosphere, the adepts understand the scene more as a frivolous game. David and Caroline Stafford describe it like this. The difference is striking. In Randy's version, you're fairly certain that the protagonist has either paid for or otherwise coerced the love in his life and, like a fussy customer in a restaurant, expects his very precise requirements to be respected. Joe Cocker and Tom Jones both do it as a barnstorming celebration of sexy, sexy sex between sexy, sexy people. Similar to Mama Told Me Not to Come, Cooter's bottleneck emphasizes the nightmarish overtones of the situation. The title Last Night I Had a Dream sounds harmless at first, but you can guess that this is about a nightmare or two. The song even increases the nightmare factor if that's possible. So last night our protagonist had a dream. He was in it, his partner and everyone they know. He saw a vampire and a ghost. Everybody scared him, his partner the most. She was lying on the floor and didn't remember his name, which kind of left him speechless. We don't learn what else happened in this dream within a dream. For example, what all the acquaintances were doing there. At the very least, it's about alienation, perhaps also about the fear of being betrayed. Or, as Sean Fennessy speculated in an article for the online portal The Ringer, the song could be interpreted as a kind of jubilant gang-rape fantasy. In any case, this is a far cry from the Disney films for which Newman later wrote the music. Started out in the barnyard, sundown. And everyone was laughing. You were lying on the ground. You say, Honey, can you tell me what your name is? Honey, can you tell me what your name is? I say, You know what my name is. Sail Away was Newman's biggest album up to that point. It sold an impressive 120,000 copies in the United States. Not so bad, but hardly setting the charts on fire. Two years later, the acclaimed concept album Good Old Boys followed. Again produced by Lenny Waronker and Russ Teitelman, the album is dedicated to the American South of Newman's childhood. Here, Newman is even more political and provocative than on his previous albums. Suggested Listen the album opener Rednecks. Good Old Boys made it onto Rolling Stone's list of the 500 best albums of all time. Rye Cooter is featured on only one song, Back On My Feet Again. His electric bottleneck has a gentle country feel to it.
In October 1974, Randy Newman performed at the Atlanta Symphony Hall for the live world premiere of his new album. He was accompanied by the 87-piece Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, conducted by his uncle Emil. Ry Cooter opened the show, the first of a 20-city tour together that would end in Princeton, New Jersey in late February 1975. Much like his association with Arlo Guthrie, Cooter's collaboration with Randy Newman ended rather unspectacularly in the mid-70s. In 1977, three years after Good Old Boys, he played for the last time on a regular Randy Newman album with Little Criminals. It was a weaker effort, but still found its advocates. Vivian Goldman wrote in Sounds, The session men are the elite of America's native musics. Willie Weeks, bass, Andy Newmark, drums representing funk. The Eagles crowd, J.D. Souther, Glenn Frey, Joe Walsh, representing country, plus a dash of Ry Cooter on mandolin, Jim Keltner and Klaus Foreman as an alternate rhythm section. Surprisingly, the album's not disjointed. Randy's presence is so powerful and consistent that the surface is smooth. It's all about emotions conveyed through minor chords. On Kathleen, a slow and funky minor key tale in which the narrator marries an Irish girl in Chicago, Cooter is credited with mandolin. But even after repeated listening, there is no mandolin to be heard in the song. It's much more likely that Cooter played one of the two electric guitars. Have a listen. Fortunately, the collaboration between Newman and Cooter didn't end there. In 1983, Newman gave a club concert at New York's The Odeon, which was later released on DVD. As usual, it was mostly him and his piano, but he was accompanied by Cooter on some of the songs. It's a relaxed gig, like feel-good house music among old friends. Together they play Mama Told Me Not To Come, with a much friendlier guitar than on 12 songs. The song is followed by Let's Burn Down the Cornfield. This time, Cooter's guitar is almost as mean as in the original. Stay out of danger till I return. Then the two are joined by Linda Ronstadt. A few years later, Cooter would play with her and Emmylou Harris and Dolly Parton on the great country album, The Trio. Here, they also play a country song, Rider in the Rain. 
They can't help but laugh at the ironic vocals. And near the end, Cooter gets to sing a few lines as well. Ain't gonna work for him no more. I'm a son of the prairie and a wind that sweeps the plain. So I'm going to Arizona just to ride her in the rain. He's a rider in the rain. He's a rider in the rain. More than 10 years later, in 1995, to be precise, Newman and Cooter collaborated again. A project that could easily fill an entire podcast episode on its own. But we only want to touch on it briefly here because Cooter's role was relatively small. We are talking about Randy Newman's Faust, of course, a monumental musical adaptation of Goad's classic. Newman had been carrying the idea around for a long time. And basically, it was a no-brainer to combine his different strengths and preferences in one musical. Soundtrack grandeur, blues-savvy studio rock, and general Americana, as critic Robert Christgau called it. At the time, Barney Hoskins wrote in Mojo magazine, On one level, Faust is the fulfillment of a long-harbored dream to write a musical, featuring 17 songs in a variety of styles from cabaret to cod gospel to power balladry. On another level, it's an excuse for the great man to debate the nature of good and evil with his chosen counterpart James Taylor, whose blandly emollient tenor is well-suited to the role of God. The stage version premiered at the La Jolla Playhouse in San Diego in September 1995. This coincided with the release of a concept album version featuring a different cast and arrangements than the stage version. After all, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice had done the same for Jesus Christ Superstar and Avia to drum up interest before opening the shows, and it had worked for both. So Reprise released an all-star album with Don Henley as Faust, James Taylor as God, Elton John as the Angel of England, Linda Ronstadt as Margaret the Ingenue, and Bonnie Raitt as Martha the Bad Girl with a Heart of Gold. Newman played the devil, of course. Cooter was in on the sessions, along with Bill Payne of Little Feet, Kenny Aronoff of John Mellencamp's band, and drummer Jim Keltner, among others. On Life Has Been Good to Me, sung by Bonnie Raitt, Cooter plays a relatively low-key guitar. The same can be said for the last song on the album. It has a more than fitting title to bring this bonus episode to a close. Happy ending. And yes, that does bring us to the end of this bonus episode of The Rye Cooter Story. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hey, 
Hello Cooter fans, as most of you know, our podcast is currently on hiatus, but that shouldn't stop us from wishing one of the greatest singer-songwriters of all time a happy 80th birthday, Randy Newman. So we're pulling one of our early bonus episodes out of the archives. It covers about 30 years of successful collaboration between Cooter and Newman. Have fun with it.